You're listening to Mockingbird. This recording was made at the 8th Annual Mockingbird Conference, held at Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. My name's Ethan Richardson, and I work for Mockingbird. My, my main gig with Mockingbird is doing the magazine now, and so... Um, what? Oh, oh, you're... Too, yeah. Gets me every time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I came across Capen, uh, uh, gosh, several years ago with the book Kingdom Grace Judgment. Is it, has anybody read that or know about it? Okay, and has anybody not read any Capen or doesn't know much about Capen? Okay, that's great too. Um, so. Just a quick bio on the man. He grew up in the Bronx and uh, went to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher this, Stuyvesant, I think, high school, um, which is, I think, a, a public high school here in the city that's very uh, highly touted, and uh, then went to Columbia and seminary, and, uh, and then began work as, as a parish priest in Long Island, where he was married, and. Uh, and then also became the dean of a seminary. And uh, I think Mercer School of Theology was the name of it. And uh, kind of rose to prominence when he wrote sort of a, a family, like um, marriage, marriage and family book from a Christian perspective called Bed and Board. And that was back in 65, I think. And... Uh, like the Christian world sort of like fawned over this book because he was someone who took grace very seriously, but um, also was able to write in a very funny way about how family dynamics are just messy. And messy they were. He, he was married to his first wife for 28 years and then um, was divorced and, and married his second wife, Valerie, to which his bishop frowned upon and sort of gave him an ultimatum uh, which was unfortunate for him because he had both his uh, preaching job and his teaching job under this bishop. And so it was kind of a resign or be fired situation. And so from that point on, he became sort of a freelance writer and, um, and lived on Shelter Island, which is a little island off of Long Island. I had to do all this stuff on Wikipedia because I don't know New York geography at all. And he, um, he became uh, a prolific writer. That's, that's what he did. And um, he talks about a certain point in his life, uh, in the prologue of one of his books, that was uh, very uh, moving for him and, and trans transformative. And um, so I want to read that first. And just to kind of make this less boring for you people, uh, I don't want to be the only one reading because uh, we, there's, there's a lot here to read and it's all really good, but if you're just hearing my voice, you're going to fall asleep. It's just that time of day. So um, if, if you just got here, there's, um, there's packets up front. And let's go ahead and look at the very first part. This comes from Romance of the Word, which is a collection of some of his early theological writings, but um, at the beginning, he kind of talks about his life and, like, and how his ministry sort of uh, fell apart and then was resurrected. So, I'll read this one and then uh, we'll start having volunteers. So this, is, this is about the death he experienced in 1974. He actually died two years ago, uh, but this is a death of sorts. Anyway, back to the turning point. Simply put, something I took as a personal tragedy occurred in my life in late 1974. I give you no details, except to say that what happened was largely my fault and that the experience was devastating. But I didn't even begin to understand it until in 1975, I attended a clergy conference conducted by Jim Forbes, who is now the senior pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. Over three days, he hammered home the message that the only reason the church cannot rise from its moribund condition is that it will not die. 
that for as long as it tries to hang on to the life it thinks it has, it will never enjoy the gift of resurrection from the dead that God gives it in Jesus. Jesus came to raise the dead, he said, not to teach the teachable, reform the reformable, or improve the improvable. As I later came to put it myself, the only ticket anyone needs to God's party of grace and forgiveness is, by great good luck, the one ticket everybody has, death. Only after that, and only bit by bit, did I begin to understand the tragedy I was not just devastated or hurt or ill-used or broken. I was dead. Unless you have been through such an experience, you may find this overblown. But my life, as I had known it, was over. Gone. Kaput. If I ever lived again, and it was inconceivable to me that I could, it would not be by my hand. You want to ask me, of course, but what about all the positive parts of your life that were still in, your, in place? Wife, children, work, success. Was it fair of you simply to write off all that as gone? You missed the point. All those goodnesses remained exactly as they were. I did not write them off. I died, just as suddenly and certainly as if I had been run over by an 18-wheeler. Fairness or unfairness, guilt or innocence, blame or exculpation had nothing to do with the case. My life-designing capabilities were not impaired or in need of remedial treatment. I just didn't have my life anymore. But far from being a sad state of affairs, that turned out to be the best news I had ever heard. My death was not the tragedy I first thought. It was my absolution, my freedom. Nobody can blame a corpse, especially not the corpse itself. Once dead, we are out from under all the blame harrows and guilt spreaders forever. We are free, and free above all from the messes we have made of our own lives. And if there is a God who can take the dead and, without a single condition of creditworthiness or a single pointless promise of reform, raise them up, whole and forgiven, free for nothing, well, that would not only be wild and wonderful, it would be the single piece of good news in a world drowning in an ocean of blame. It was not all up to me. It was never up to me at all. It was up to someone I could only trust and thank. It was salvation by grace, through faith, not works. Okay, so I'll stop there. I just think that's beautiful. I mean, it's just such a picture of death and resurrection, which... Uh, for him is the the essence of the gospel uh, that uh, we are killed by uh, we are killed by life and we are resurrected by Jesus and and grace is this word that Capon has um, one of he's one of the most beautiful articulations articulators of this this grace and he talks about it just spreading wildly um, that it's that it's just it's it's this free-for-all it's it's wild you can't contain it and you can't even try to uh, parse out why you got it because you can't you, you didn't get it for any reason whatsoever and so um, and this is the way that Capon sees Jesus he sees this is his ministry that he's bringing on this kingdom whereby Love, the love of God, comes not by um, how well you're able to uphold the laws, but because of God's great gift. And so, um, I was trying to think of a great way of uh, starting this off. Like, what's a good place, if you've never read Capon before, and you, and you want to get a picture of uh, what his theology is all about, the, the place I wanted to go was... Uh, his take on the parable of the sower, which um, is, if, if you're not familiar, um, the parable goes that there's a farmer that sows seeds, and the seeds are sown everywhere. You know, they land in the field, they land on the road, they land in the bushes, they land uh, everywhere, and some of them pop up and some of them don't. And I've always had a hard time with this parable because I thought that, you know, 
you need to decide which seed you're going to be. You know, like, are you going to be the seed that, that nourishes the gift you've been given, that takes good care of it, that um, has quiet times and uh, performs the right uh, behavioral tasks that you need to, that you need to, to do? Or, um, or are you going to squander the gift that's been given to you? Are you going to let it get, you know, uh, picked up by the birds or burnt up by the sun? And so Capon calls this parable the watershed of parables. He says that this is the this is the main this is the parable of how Jesus pictures his ministry, his kingdom and God's gift to us, to humankind. And um and mainly it's the way that he characterizes himself. So um without going any further, let's let's go ahead and read um so it should be on the next page, and at the top of the page should be this word Catholicity. And the way that he, uh, one, one like wide theme of Capon's work is this idea of, uh, of, of a Catholic faith, a faith that's lowercase c, not uppercase c, uh, that is of the whole, that is widespread everywhere. And we see it in his parables in Jesus' parables all the time about the yeast that only needs a little bit and it spreads throughout the whole loaf. It goes everywhere. And the seed that is sown that goes everywhere. And so I'm just going to let him do the talking uh, for the rest. So here we go. Does someone want to read? Ben, thanks. The idea of the capitalicity of the kingdom, the insistence that it is at work everywhere, always and for all, rather than in some places, at some times, for some people, is an integral part of Jesus' teaching from start to finish. True, at the outset of his ministry, it was expressed by little more than his irksome tendency to sit loose to the highly parochial messianic notions of his hearers. By, for example, his breaking of the Sabbath, his consorting with undesirable types, and his constant challenging of the narrow views of the scribes and the Pharisees. But it becomes practically the hallmark of his teaching once he begins his use of the parabolic method in earnest. Not only does he resort, as in the parable of 11, to the occasional illustration that quite literally uses the word whole, far more often he sets up his parables in such a way that by their very terms they cover nothing less than a whole world. The device he uses may not be obvious to the casual reader, but once it has been spotted, it can be seen again and again. When Jesus sketches his parabolic characters or circumstances, he often drafts them so inconclusively that no one, at any time or any place, is left out of the scope of his teaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, another example is. Um, that I thought of was the, the wheat in the weeds. There's a parable where uh, th- these farmers have sowed seed, and uh, they wonder, you know, while, while it's growing, should we go out and pull out all the weeds so that the wheat can grow better? And out of this entire field, let's parse out the good things from the bad things. And the response of the landowner is, no, you need to let them all grow up together. The whole needs to reach its harvest, and then you can make the decision of what was good from what was bad. And, um, and another one is the net, um, which I very rarely think of, this drag net that pulls all the crap. I mean, it pulls the good stuff and the bad stuff, but all of it gets, gets pulled ashore. Um, and then there's that little selection, um, another paragraph on the next page. Would someone read that? In the case of the parable of the sower, however, there is still another and more subtle indication of the note of capitalism. Jesus' parables, even when they were not spoken to anyone outside the small group of the disciples, were set forth, as I have said, in the context of high parochial ideas about God's relationship with the world. If you have any feeling for the way narrow minds work, you will realize that the sower, as told, would immediately strike such minds as reeking of the Catholicity they had spent their entire religious lives imploring. People who are that narrow do not really listen to what someone says. Rather, they sniff at his words 
that check them over to spot the squishy, rotten spots through which ideas they hate might see So um, this idea of Catholicity is also uh, runs against the current of um, fearful exclusion, you know, like uh, keeping some ideas at bay for fear of them uh, possibly disrupting um, what they're so tightly holding on to for righteousness sake. Um, so here he's almost saying that this Catholicity um, for the Pharisees was such an offense because it was, uh, it was precisely by their by exclusion, that they were able to stand up so tall. So, Catholicity is, is our first thing. Um, and then we have this idea of mystery on the next page. Um, so, in the parable of the sower, you have uh, the imagery of a seed that's being scattered. But if anybody is a gardener or, or knows a gardener, uh, when seeds go in, they disappear. And what looks like a barren field is actually filled with potential. And the, the way that God works, according to Capon, is by things not being seen. And it's the way that he also believes God intervenes in the world in ways that we can't see, uh, which is oftentimes uh, frustrating. So let's go ahead and read this next part. Um, does anybody want to read this? Yeah. Consider the imagery of seed. First of all, seeds are disproportionately small compared with what they eventually produce. In the case of herbs, which for some reason Jesus took special delight in, they are in fact almost ridiculously small. Anyone who has granted time or savory knows the strange sensation of practically losing sight the seed has been dropped into the field. You might as well sow nuts for a What does that say about the word of God that the sower sows? Well, it certainly does not say what we would have said. Left for our own devices, we would probably have likened the words added to a thunderbolt or to a fireworks display, or to something else we judge sufficiently unmistakable to stand in for a notion of pushing, totally right-handed God. Instead, this parable says that the true coming of the Word of God, even if you see it, doesn't look like very much. And now that finally gets around to doing its real work, he's so mysterious that they cannot even be found at all. That is the second thing about seeds. They disappear. In the obvious sense, they do so, because, they are, because of their need to be covered over with earth in order to function. Think of the light that that sheds on the Messianic secret. Jesus is taking what may have been only an instinctive dislike of publicity and turning it into a theological principle. But in the profound sense, they disappear because only because once they are thus covered, they eventually become not only unrecognizable, but undiscoverable as well. As far as the community is concerned, they simply die and disappear. Think what that says about Jesus and how it reacts through his whole ministry. He, as the word, comes to his own, and his own receives acknowledgement. He is the spot. He is the stone that the village rejected. He is ministering to, not in his own recognizable form, but in the sick, the imprisoned, and the generally down and out. And to cap his whole career as the and to cap his whole career as the word is sown in the field of the world, he dies, rises, and vanishes. His entire work proceeds, as does the work of a seed. It takes place in mystery, in secret. In a way that, as Luther said, can neither be known nor felt, but only believed, trusted. Once again, that is not our idea of how a respectable divine operation ought to be done. 
We would rather have casualties and agencies that were a bit more proportionate to their results. Given our drivers, our fifth illustration of the kingdom would probably be a giant nail driven into the world, appropriately enough, by a giant hammer in the hand of a giant god. Something noisy and noticeable. A seed of coming. So he's a great writer too, which is uh, which makes him fun to read. But um, yeah, just the the picture that we would arrange God's intervention in the world is not the picture that God chooses. That's that's the key to mystery uh, for Capon is that uh, for all the world, uh, God's action in the world seems to happen so quietly as to be unnoticeable and oftentimes unfindable, even if you're looking for it. And, and then he also points out that, that part of, of Jesus not wanting to be seen. Like he performs a miracle and he, he says, tell no one. And so it's almost that the lived ministry of Christ is also part of this mystery, um, which has huge implications for the way I see my life and think about my life and, and God's involvement in it. Um, but I love that line that we would, we would rather have a thunderclap, you know, we would rather have the glory story. We would rather have, uh, something that comes in and, um, and shows us it's there and makes, makes these changes on a, um, on a visible level. But that's not what we get with Jesus. And so, um, this is has a lot to do with what uh, Will was talking about just a minute ago and quite a bit what um, everyone has really been saying that um, especially I thought about Jamin talking about play and how so often the mystery of play is invisible to us in its power uh, and that so often we would, we would rather choose something you know mechanistic that, that can give us a result or give us something to see and instead, uh, we're given something that is small and childish. So um, this is the next main theme that at least I really love in Capon is this idea uh, that he actually got, I think, from Luther, which is the idea of right-handed power and the idea of left-handed power, uh, where God where we think God ought to use right-handed power and come down with, with a giant hammer and make things right. Uh, instead, left-handed power is, is what's used. Yeah, there's, there's right-handed power right there. And it's not that right-handed power is a bad thing, as you'll see in, in what we read, but uh, it, it does get things done, you know? As Capon says, and we'll read this, you can lift the fork off the plate and pick up spaghetti with right-handed power. Right-handed power is just the power we use every day to get things done. Um, but left-handed power is this mysterious power that, um, that ha happens almost in secret. So, um, much like the, the sower of the seed, if that's the image we're still sticking with, uh, these seeds are just being thrown out willy-nilly. And, and then they're landing where they do. It's not like Jesus' story is of a, um, a prudent farmer who you know, puts things down and rows along the soil, but, but it goes everywhere. It goes on the road. It goes in bushes, and that just seems kind of silly. Um, but it throws caution to the wind. All right, so let's read this next. You're going to skip a page, actually, and um, you'll see right versus left hand on pages 18 and 19. And again, all of this is coming from a book called Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, which we have on the book table. And it's basically his take on all the parables. He, he sort of categorizes all of the parables of Jesus as parables of the kingdom of God, parables of the grace of God, parables of the judgment of God. And um, for someone who had a very difficult time with parables uh, when I was in high school and college, it completely turns some of these stories over, um, over their head. That's not, that's not the phrase, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, on their head. Would someone else like to read? 
right versus left hand power? Yeah. Direct straight line intervening power does, of course, have many uses. With it, you can lift the spaghetti from the plate to your mouth, wipe the sauce off your slacks, carry them to the dry cleaners, and perhaps even make enough money to ransom them back. Indeed, straight line power, quote, use the force you need to get the results you want, is responsible for almost everything that happens in the world. And the beauty of it is, it works. From removing the dust with a cloth to removing your enemy with a 45, it achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. Unfortunately, it has a whopping limitation. If you take the view that one of the chief objects in life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, straight line power becomes useless. Oh, admittedly, you can snatch your baby boy away from the edge of a cliff and not have a broken relationship on your hands. But just try interfering with his plans for the season when he is 20 and see what happens, especially if his chosen plans play havoc with your own. Suppose he makes unauthorized use of your car, and you use a little straight-line verbal power to scare him out of doing it again. Well and good, but suppose further that he does it again anyway, and again, and again, and again. What do you do next if you are committed to straight-line power? You raise your voice a little more nastily each time until you can't shout any louder, and then you beat him if you're stronger than he is until you can't beat any harder. Then you chain to the radiator tip. <laughs> but you see the point. At some very early crux in that difficult personal relationship, the whole thing will be destroyed unless you, who on any reasonable view should be allowed to use straight line power, simply refuse to use it. Unless, in other words, you decide that instead of dishing out justifiable pain and punishment, you are willing, quite foolishly, to take a beating yourself. Okay, pause there. Uh, so, again, he's not knocking right-handed power. He is saying that this is the way that the world works. You know, you don't come to work, you lose your job, you don't get money, and you can't feed the kids. It's, it's simple cause and effect. Um, but he's also saying that somehow in, the, in God's beautiful creation of human beings, we don't tend to work on a relational level in the same way. That power doesn't, doesn't work. Um, we can't just hear um, the words of the Father, you can't use the car, uh, as just a fact, as an objective fact that's fair. It's, it's, it's an indictment, you know, and so we rebel. And so it ends up making things worse until we choose not to use it because it just doesn't work um, or things get worse. Um, but that's just a quick interruption. Go ahead. This is left-handed power. But such a paradoxical exercise of power, please note, is 180 degrees away from the straight line variety. It is, to introduce a phrase from Luther, left-handed power. Unlike the power of the right hand, which interestingly enough is governed by the logical, plausibility-loving left hemisphere of the brain, left-handed power is guided by the more intuitive, open, and imaginative right side of the brain. Left-handed power, in other words, is precisely paradoxical power. Power that looks for all the world like weakness, intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. More than that, it is guaranteed to stop no determined evildoers whatsoever. It might, of course, touch and soften their hearts, but then again it might not. It certainly didn't for Jesus, and if you decide to use it, you should be quite clear that it probably won't for you either. The only thing it does ensure is that you will not, even after your chin has been bashed in, have made the mistake of closing any interpersonal doors from your side. Okay. Uh, I just want to stop here for a second, you know, take a pulse, but... Um, you know, there, there are ways that we feel this strain all over in, in our lived experience, not just in the theological operation of Christ in God, uh, but in human relationships like Capon's describing here, there's, you know, there's the strength that we are asked to posture in life versus the weakness that we oftentimes feel 
Um, there's like, you know, possession of, of things or of a job that we long for, but life um, commands that we surrender it. And in this example, thinking of human relationships, uh, there's the intervention that we feel like we ought to make, and that if we could only make, things would change, versus the, the passivity that we just can't trust. You know, if I just, if I don't say anything, nothing's ever going to change. If I just keep loving this person, like, what am I left with? And so I just wanted to ask how this is hitting you. Um, you don't have to share anything, but uh, I thought we would stop here and think, like, where, where in life do you find this right-handed, left-handed power? What comes to mind, or um, where do you see it? Kurt? Did you point to me? No, Kurt. See your Okay. Let me see. That's bad. I'm going to feel like it's really Yeah, we were just talking about that at lunch. Yeah, Rob Rosen, he kind of tells it as this is like my conversion experience. Like I became a, a Christian. Um, basically, in high school, Rob Rosenblatt was in the um, undergraduate um, got drunk, stole his father's car with his friends, and left the car. And this is back in the day when the cops just took him home. <laughs> Rather than you know, taking jail, so the cops took him home. His father's waiting up, he's uh, worried about it. And his dad could see the law had already done it. Well, I mean, Rob's out terrified. That was, I was horribly sorry, and I was terrified of what was going to happen to me. And his dad said, well, go, go to sleep, and talk about it. And he said, he mercifully told my mother not to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, he didn't sleep that night. He comes down the next morning to the breakfast table and he's, he's just, all right, I'm going to get it. And all that said was, why don't we go get a car now? Hmm. And he said, I literally was going to get a So, hardcore looking power. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's for me, at least, I'm like, well, I don't have that in me, so it's going to happen. You're going to have to Yeah. You got to get that in me. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Jim. I'm going to share a story based on that story, by the way, position counseling in the long way love. Yeah. Based on that story, my son was taking flying lessons. Uh, after doing some solo flying, because I didn't have his license, took the car to the gas station and called us minutes later because he put diesel in the car. Yeah, Jim.
That's what it means to everyone, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think this notion of right-handed, I think it has a lot to say about like, pastoral leadership. And what it, you know, what does it mean to lead a healthy congregation? Because like the right-handed, like, it's, it's really effective and it's efficient. You can think about quantifiable goals, wanting to meet a certain benchmark to quantify success. Like, you can do that by if you think about the church as like just a network of relationships, and relationships are inherently efficient. You know, yep. they're governed by the left hand. Oh, they're, they're, you know. And I don't know, I mean, I just never thought about that. That's an interesting way to look at how you would be a fruitful, healthy pastor and lead a fruitful, healthy congregation. But, but you do have to have rules and standards, you know, whatever, and all yeah. that stuff. But the heart of it is this left hand. Yeah. And um, I want to get to you. I, I was just going to say, to add to that, it's risky too. I mean, yeah. it's there's no guarantee that that's going to work. Like, um, what sucks is there's no there's no guarantee that there's an alternative to using right-handed power. Like Capen says, like you know, um, it. It still, it still probably will get you punched in the face, but at least on your end, you didn't, you didn't burn any bridges for people. You know, you didn't, um, you didn't become the antithesis of the gospel that you preach. You know, um, yeah. Just so I can give you a picture of Capen, the person, um, 
This, if you turn to the next page, uh, this one's in the New York Times. So I said up, up there that he also is a food writer. And not everyone knows that, but he, he was a columnist for the New York Times for quite some time. And this is from 1983, The Case Against Heavy Cream, a metaphysical quibble. And so part of his, uh, his tendency to kind of feel, I don't know, a sense of paranoia about the, um, this distinction between risk and um, control is, is even spelled out in the way that he talks about cooking. You know? So here he is talking about the use of heavy cream and, uh, in the kitchen. And what he says about heavy cream is that, like, it's, it's good. It tastes good. Yeah, it's bad for your health, but so is, you know, waking up in the morning. So, like, you should, you should, have, you should have heavy cream. Um, but, so his, here's the setting. He's, it's, a, it's a parliament kind of setting for the food authorities, and this, this uh, young lawyer is making a case for heavy cream in a world that hates heavy cream. I'll read this one. The scene is the Great Hall of the International Parliament of Food Authorities. The President, having called the session to order, announces the first item of business, the consideration of a resolution to ban the use of heavy cream. He then recognizes the Chairman of the Committee on Endangered Foodstuffs, who rises to address the group. Mr. President and fellow members, your committee has deliberated long and carefully over the resolution referred to us. Nevertheless, in order that your minds may have fresh evidence of the dangers it presents, we ask you to bear with us while we read it in its ominous entirety. Whereas heavy cream, since it contains saturated fat, contributes not only to high serum cholesterol levels and the formation of arterial plaque, but also to all the health hazards attendant upon those conditions. And whereas heavy cream is high in calories and therefore fattening, and whereas heavy cream is both unnecessary and expensive, and may thus, without detrimental effect, be either eliminated outright or replaced by substitutes. Okay, so they're laying out the, the rules and the reasons to, to not use heavy cream. And I hope you see the connection that there is this, you know, this theology of control and anthropology of control. And, um, and the gospel runs in the opposite direction. And um, what happens when you, when you risk things is you might get some arterial plaque, but you, you may actually enjoy your life too. Um, and so uh, let's go to the next page. And this is when he's getting into his argument. Calories are as irrelevant to the consumption of cream as inches or numbers are to the eating of pasta. Calories, inches, and numbers, in fact, are mere abstractions, beings of reason that have never in the entire history of the world been tasted, felt, or smelled by anyone. Nevertheless, even for those who choose to live their lives in bondage to such creatures of air and darkness, there's no reason to ban specific foods. They can simply eat less of everything, fewer yards of linguine, fewer ounces of cream in smaller numbers, down even to the just one that supposedly nobody can eat, potato chips. The expensive cream is likewise irrelevant. Those who want to buy veal instead of tuna fish will forego whatever they must to make the expense possible. Indeed, there is hardly anyone who, will, who can't afford such an ordinary luxury as cream. The only sane rule is to think good first and cheap last. And and to scheme until we can put our money where our minds are. Most irrelevant of all, however, is the claim that heavy cream is unnecessary. From a philosophical point of view, nothing at all is necessary except the uncaused first cause. Salt is unnecessary, sugar is unnecessary, ducks are unnecessary, the proponents of this resolution are unnecessary, and the universe itself is unnecessary. Accordingly, nothing in the world can be argued for or against on the grounds of necessity. Um, all right, I, I'm going to stop there just because we're, we're going to run out of time. Um, but I just wanted to give you a picture. This is in the New York Times. You know, this is, uh, this is someone who um, under, understands this, this gospel of freedom and, um, 
and the risk that it entails and delights in the fact that like life is to be enjoyed and in the mystery of that. So um, I had to read the heavy cream piece. Um, so yeah, this, this left-handed approach to like the religious calorie counter, uh, the control freak in all of us, um, there's also this um, far more serious level of concern um, because with left-handed and right-handed power you get the sense that you, you, you can throw caution to the wind to the calorie counter inside but what about when things happen in life that are um, disastrous you know catastrophes happen cancers happen um, uh, marriages collapse and uh, suffering happens in a way that can't be explained by um, a necessary cause. And when you need help in that situation, you could use some right-handed power, you know? Like, you could, you could use prayer to be answered in a, in a right-handed way, you know? Cure this cancer. Um, restore this marriage. And sometimes it doesn't happen that way. And so um, another... Thing I want to read is what Capon says about suffering and the presence of God in suffering. And um, he talks about the way that the scientific age, you know, being in the modern age where um, you can sort of demythologize everything. We know what stars are made of, we know how many there are, we know blah, blah, blah. Um, but then he talks about the age where we actually believed that the stars made music and that the world sort of. Um, was, was present with um, love, you know, that love made everything go around. And, and he doesn't want to actually go back to this, uh, to this way of thinking, but he does want to say that there's something lost when we've gone to the scientific age, and um, part of that is the way that we view um, these places of suffering, sort of where the rubber meets the road. And so this comes from his short book called Third Peacock, which uh, I would highly recommend. Mainly it's about the problem of evil, theodicy, and, um, but this little bit is about um, Christ bearing himself in suffering and how he presents himself in suffering. Okay, so that should be on the next page. Would someone like to read? Great, thanks. So would God, perhaps, might not incarnation be his response, not to the incidental irregularity of sin, but to the unhelpful presence of madness in creation. Perhaps in a world where, for admittedly inscrutable reasons, victimization is the reverse of the coin of being, his help consists in his continuous presence in all victims. At any rate, when he finally does show up in Jesus, that is how it seems to work. His much herald is coming to put all things to rights in his battle. When the invisible hand that holds the star finally does its triumphant restoring thing, it does nothing at all but hang there and bleed. That may well be help, but it's not the band-aid that creation expected on the basis the only way it makes any sense is when it seems as personal. When we are helpless, there he is. He didn't start your stalled car for you. He comes and dies with you in the snowbank. You can object that he should have made a world which caused himself, but you can't complain he doesn't stick by his customers. Okay, pause for a sec. Um, one thing that he's distinguishing is the idea of mechanical help, which is kind of right-handed help, and personal help, which is um, some, uh, an image he gives is, uh, you know, during uh, the death of a friend, um, there's a funeral wake, and, and people just sit with. And it's not that they've really put a Band-Aid on the situation, but their help comes not at the expense of erasing uh, what 
what happened. The person has still died, but they just in their very presence, they, they are a help. And so he's, he's saying here that Jesus, um, in suffering, that, he, that he's uh, born out in the suffering of human beings, is, is a presence. It's like this um, relational presence that uh, is not a mechanical help, but a, a friend in, in need. Okay, so, yeah, can we, can we keep going? Nevertheless, being broad-minded, Jesus is likely paradoxical, or inconsistent, if you like. He reserves the right to start to follow you at such times and places as you and he can work out in conference. Have mercy on me, son of David, says the woman of Canaan. And after a little verbal fencing, and a few good, don't know that, running out of time, and there are so many things that I thought I was going to be able to get to, and I'm really sad, but I'm also glad that you guys have this little packet. Um, the things that we didn't get to, uh, Capen talks about um, heartburn, and uh, this is in another book that we have called The Supper of the Lamb, which is a cookbook, and it's in the modern library of, of cookbooks. I mean, this is this sold very well, and... Uh, and he, he, it's kind of this like um, story of, of faith and cooking, but the last chapter is about heartburn and the salve for heartburn being um, baking soda. And again, it's, it's his way of saying that heartburn is actually uh, a sacrament for the burning in our hearts for uh, the love of God. And that sounds so corny, the way I just said it, but it's actually, he does it so well. Um, and I'm going to, speaking of the, the burning love of God, I, I, I want to play this. This is, um, this is an old uh, like radio show that he did, and you just have to hear his voice, because this is why I call this Salty Land, because he just has this like salty Long Island uh, voice. So I'm going to play it, and then, um, and then we'll be done. Uh, the old boy <clears throat> is the uh, one 
that I just found by looking looking in the nether regions of the internet. Yeah. Um, just for anybody who uh, wants to go take homage, the last one to go across the park and across the other park, a little bit to the south, <coughs> despite the high school where she Walking distance. Oh, awesome. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you, guys.